take your newly formed flyer and find the book of Judges and place this in Judges 17. We're going to get to Judges 17 in just a moment. And leave your newly made flyer there as a placeholder and then flip open to Romans 1. That's where we're going to start this morning. We're wrapping up the series on Judges this morning. And we're going to cover several chapters to close the book out. And really, this these last four chapters form kind of the third section in the book. And... And what you see, there was kind of a double intro to the book. There's kind of a double appendix to the book. There's these two scenarios we're going to look at. And there's no more foreign influence. You remember there's been just all kinds of negative things that are going on as a result of Israel's sin that's been happening. There's no more commentary about the actions. Remember hearing this refrain over and over again? The author of Judges says this, And again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a commentary on their behavior, right? There's no more of that. That goes away now. There's no judge that we're going to see in this last section that's going to rise up to rescue and help restore Israel. Only this repeated observation, it's seen four times in four chapters. Here it is. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, this has been a repeated refrain through Judges, but here, again, it just closes out the book by this repeated observation of what I just said. What we're going to see is two different pictures of kind of where the moral climate has devolved into. One's going to be very personal, wrapped around someone's household, and one's going to be much more public and broad. It's what life looks like when there's no king. It's when there's a society made up of judges, and not just judges, but judges who are leading their life by their glands, doing what's best for themselves. If there was a soundtrack to the last part of Judges, it would be foreboding, it would be eerie, it would be just kind of a lost feel to to the whole thing. Uh, One commentary outline puts it this way, it was summarizing the book of Judges, in the first two periods it It called out as chapters 1 through 16, and in this last four chapters, it just says this is the period of confusion and anarchy. So that's where we've gotten to. We've kind of just wound down to this position. What we're going to do is we're going to discover their worldview the same way you discover anyone's worldview. You look at their actions, and you look at their words. So if you want to know what people really believe about the world, about humanity, about spiritual things, about the afterlife, about any of that, You do the same thing we're going to do in the book of Judges. We're going to look at their words, and we're going to look at their actions taken together. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. I was introduced to it by my college pastor, and he says this in that book, what comes into our minds when, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Strong statement. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. In these four chapters, this has been a heavy week. The thoughts about God from Israel are pretty low. And when you wonder, how does theology impact my daily life? How does what I think about God and and all this Bible stuff, how does that impact my daily life? We're going to see it played out for us this morning. One commentator said this, Israel is wallowing 
in her own religious and moral mess. The problem is not the enemy without, but the cancer within. On Tuesday, Rob and I were texting back and forth, and he was, um, you know, asking for a sense of kind of where things were going. And, uh, and here's what I texted him back. I said, find all your wretched, depraved, and depressing songs and sing those. We'll do the whole service in total darkness. This is a really messed up period of Israel's history. <clears throat> to which he just replies, wow. <laughs> Honestly, that's where I was at. I was just, I was studying and going, God, this is heavy stuff. This is not a fun passage to be soaking in and thinking through. And um, sometimes you get in places of scripture and you just get a fresh distaste for sin. You, you smell the stench of sin and it doesn't seem appealing. There's other periods where sin is very appealing and it's alluring. And that's why we, we fall for it and go after it. All scripture is profitable doesn't mean that all scripture is easy. Some Old Testament story sections can be particularly challenging, especially when what appears to go on in this section, there's not a lot of commentary. In a lot of the Gospels and in a lot of the, the epistles of the New Testament, there's very clear, do this, don't do this. Or after something goes on, there's commentary that says, now that was an abomination in the sight of the Lord. There's none of that readily apparent in this passage. It just seems like the person's kind of reporting the news. I've been really enjoying a commentator that's new to me. His name is Dale Ralph Davis. And one of the things I like about him is in a very intense section of Scripture, he's done his homework to do really a studious, kind of thorough study, but he injects humor into a pretty depressing book. He was interviewed and he was asked this question, Is there a process you suggest for pastors when they sit down with an Old Testament narrative and begin to search for how they will teach Jesus and the gospel from it? And if so, what is that process you'd recommend? His answer was this. He says, I think the best process is for a guy to have a fascination with Old Testament texts and a determination to preach them. He says, a desire to get at the message of the text and an assumption that all Old Testament texts are preaching texts will carry one a long way. So church, I want to come to you and say this morning... I believe that. I've wrestled long and hard with the book of Judges. It's not been an easy study to prepare. It's probably not been an easy study to kind of walk through in certain parts. But as we wrap up, I believe that about these final four chapters and have actually come to find them miraculously timely in their warning for us as a church. Here's kind of the central truth that I want to work backward from this morning. and I want to show it to you in the text. We've been seeing this in Judges. But here it is. You can write it down if you're taking notes, or I think I put it in there for you. Repeatedly, people know the truth, they disobey, and they have their lives wrecked. Repeatedly, people know the truth, they disobey the truth, and they have their lives wrecked. <clears throat> God's covenant people, the Israelites, were no different then, and God's covenant people, the church, are no different today. The Bible lays everyone exposed to their knowledge of the truth. That is, no one can say, but I didn't know that was wrong. What I want to do is I want to read for you a passage in Romans. It starts with a very little bit of good news. It's a great passage to memorize and believe and hold on to. And then I'm going to read for you the second half of Romans 1, which is a lot of the bad news, which makes the good news such good news. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says this. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's, that's gospel good news here. Now, God's wrath on unrighteousness. Here it goes, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I couldn't think of a better passage that sets up what we're about to read, the historical account of God's covenant people acting in a way that is debased. And so that we have a biblical understanding and on the same page of what sin is, how wicked man's heart is, I just wanted to read Romans 1 for you. The Ten Commandments were known then, and the Ten Commandments are known today. We're going to see these commandments shattered one after the other after the other this morning. And the Ten Commandments do their work. You see, the law alone only shows to say, this is how you ought to live, and you're not living up to it. That's what the law does, right? The law drives us to a place of saying, help, I can't keep the law. Who isn't condemned if all you have is the law? The law drives us to Romans 
1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to save every single person who believes. We're going to see that this morning. No king, everyone doing what is right, leads to made-up gods and made-up rules. So made-up gods. Let's look back now at Judges chapter 17 and pick up the story. Verses 1 and 2. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. Pause. I told you this was dark. We start off with Micah stealing from his mom. That's how the story opens up. Broken commands. God's law number eight, you shall not steal, shattered. God's law number five, honor your father and mother, shattered. Two verses in. Pick it up in verse three. End of verse two. And his mother said, blessed blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. Guy takes the money back to mom. Mom takes the money and dedicates it to the Lord. How? By doing something wicked with it. Right? She breaks the second commandment, which is, you shall have no carved images before me. Don't make for yourself a carved image. Now, she doesn't even do that wholeheartedly. Do you see the math in there? 1,100 pieces of silver, 200 are given. Right? So this is something equivalent to, okay, God, one for you, Five for me. One for you, six for me, and we'll call it done. We're good. Right? That's essentially what she does with the silver. Doesn't even do her wicked abomination wholeheartedly, but but keeps some of it back. And then look at verse 6, appropriately placed. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So things aren't well in Micah's house. Along comes a Levite. A Levite is of the priestly line. This wasn't just any Levite. He was from Bethlehem. He was from the family of Judah. This is a big and notable thing to be of the line of Judah. Pick it up in verse 8. It says, And the man, <coughs> excuse me, and the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest. And I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Pause. 
What this Levite should have been doing is being at home, fulfilling his role as priest. Instead, he's out wandering around. Micah decides to set up his own little household temple. Why did he do this? He did this because there was no king disciplining such wrong actions. So he was doing what was best for him. He was doing what was right for him in setting up a household temple. This Levite goes in essentially because this is a sweet ministry gig. He's like, wow, I get clothes, I get living, I get money. I'm going to accept this ministry position. Pause. When your God assignment as a Levite is swayed by the highest bidder, God's not going to bless that. That's not the blessing of God. That's not why God created Levites. That's not why God called Levites to serve. Micah is blind to all of this. He ordains him. And then out comes his mouth, his theology. Essentially, he's saying this. Forget about worshiping God as God has prescribed. I'm going to worship God in a way that he essentially has to bless me. Look at verse 13. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me. How does he know that the Lord will prosper him? He says, Because I have a Levite as a priest. God has to bless me. The external forms are all in place. What could be better than bringing a priest to come live in my house and just be with me all the time? God has to bless that. Turn on the grace faucet, Lord. You have to bless me. I've got a Levite as a priest in my very own house. This is the utter folly of false religion. Made up gods are made up. There's no hope in made up gods. There's no power in made up gods. A religion is only as good as it is true. Built on flimsy sand, your theology has no hope, no foundation. Let me bring this into our lives for a moment. Belief that conforming to some external religious action or ritual leaves us in danger of the sin of Micah. Every Catholic, every Protestant, every cult member has their versions of this. I talked to a few people in our men's group who were raised in Catholic churches. I said, hey, help me out. What are some of the Catholic versions of this? I know the Protestant ones because that's what I was raised in. So let me just pick on us for a moment. Do you know that baptism, walking an aisle, fasting, attendance, tithing, faithful service and ministry... Those can all be wicked external things that we put our hope in and false gods. That can all coalesce together to become a false religion, a false hope. Now, are any of those things in and of themselves bad? Absolutely not. Do I prescribe and recommend as a Christian pastor this to many people? Absolutely. But these things can take on a life of their own And make it as if, God, I walked an aisle for you. I filled out a card. I prayed with Billy Graham. I've served faithfully for 17 years at the same post. I tithe twice a week. Does this sound familiar? You've got to let me do this. I have a not of this world sticker on my car. Right? I mean, we get really silly with this. We wouldn't say some of these things externally because we know that's not the truth. But we can start to think this way. Here's the caution. If you ever get into a God-owes-me mindset, 
chances are you are wandering and straying from the gospel. You are in some kind of a bargaining relationship with God, and you don't want to be there. I don't want to be there. Micah has set up in his own home what many today set up in their own mind. Micah has set up in his own home what many set up in their own mind, and that is this. Worship tailored to them. A God to your own liking. That's essentially what Micah did. He did it physically. I wonder how many in churches around America and around the world do this mentally. Kind of worshiping God that's totally tailored to them. Here's a statement I hear a lot as I talk to different people. People always want to go to a handful of issues with me. Whenever I'm talking to those who aren't believers, aren't Christians, aren't sympathetic to Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form, oftentimes they will say this. And actually, this is increasingly from those who come from evangelical backgrounds. Well, I could never believe in a God who... And then they fill in the blank of that. I could never believe in a God who... X, Y, Z, whatever it might be. And when I hear that, I think to myself, this is one who is forming a God who is desired rather than discovering a God who is. This is one who is saying, I can't believe in a God like that. Why? Because it goes against my sensibilities. The habit, way, the habit my way worship, convenience and consumeristic uh, in length and style with a side of me, is, is kind of what happens in a lot of churches. There's a book that captures this in its title. It's called McChurch. And the whole idea is just franchising that which people seem to really like a lot. And maybe at some point there will be some church with, you know, many sites that will say one billion served, right? Because <laughs> they've kind of locked into the secret formula of, of what is there just so happens in my quiet time this morning, I read in Matthew 10, Jesus saying, I didn't come to bring peace. Kind of stood out to me where I just saw peace on earth next to Prune Yard last night. Right? I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. There's going to be father against children. In-laws against one another. I've come, and I'm a dividing line. It's not about us. It's not about our personal whims. Micah's personal shrine then gets stolen by a tribe, not a band of, of foreigners who come along. These are fellow covenant people, the Benjamites, who come along and steal his stuff. There again, we have God's commands being broken. Look at Judges 18.1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan, pardon me, we're on Dan right now, was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. Here's what happens. Five spies are sent ahead into Micah's house. And then pick it up in verse 3. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to him, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. So this tribe of Dan, part of the Israelite people, are on their way to go plunder from an unsuspecting city, and they stop by Micah's, and they plunder his household temple. They say, we kind of like all this stuff that you've gathered, Micah. That's pretty sweet. We're going to take it for ourselves. Look at verse 14. 
Then the five men who had gone out to scout the, the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. They just kind of put it out there. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gates. So you kind of see the, the uh, picture. There's a lot of muscle here and says, hey, guess what? We kind of like your temple. Your priest is pretty cool. And that's the scene. Now we have a priest from the family of Judah, from the city of Bethlehem, surely he is going to put a stop to this injustice, right? A man of God is there. Verse 18, the priest said to them, what are you doing? There you go, step in and fight for justice. And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand over your mouth, and come with us to be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest in the house of one man or to be a priest to the tribe and clan in Israel? Here's how he responds. And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and carved images and went along with the people. You don't even have to do the stealing. You get me, I'll steal the stuff, clean out the, my former guy, and head off with you. Why is his heart glad? It's a promotion, right? The ministry guy just got a way bigger ministry gig. We could probably spend a lot of time in this room hearing of stories where people are using pastors and pastors are using people. Stories where the pastor seemed like he really cared, seemed like he really loved us, served us until until someone came along and there was something bigger and better that went on. I can remember parts in my ministry career where being on the inside staff position, we would hear someone up come up. I was a young pastor at the time, and I began to get really disillusioned about every pastor who would ever leave for a different post because it was always the same thing. It was always couched in this phrase. I've heard the call of the Lord. I've heard the call. And to us, by observation and some behind the scenes, the call almost always included a better package, better 401k, more people, more prestige. In the thinking of people's minds, less drama, different headache. And so off they would go. Friends, it's no different today. The temptation for people to use people in ministry is rampant. People sometimes want to sidle up close to the pastor. They want to kind of get close and, and use the pastor. Pastors using people is rampant. We see this in the scriptures. God calls us to serve one another, to love one another, not to use one another. And the results of that are devastating. Judges 18.30 wraps up this picture. It says this, And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, catch this, son of Moses, 
and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Here's what the author's doing there. The house of God at Shiloh is the legitimate place of worship. And what he's saying is this. For as long as that was going on there, the Danites were living outside worshiping made-up gods in their own made-up convenient way. Do you see that this is in the line of Moses? Doesn't mean because great-grandpa was a great man of God that I'm in, I'm going to do the same thing. Every generation has to meet the gospel, has to confront their sin exactly the same way. So there it is. Deuteronomy 25.15. You can just jot that down. Deuteronomy 27, excuse me, 15, says this. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. You know, the very same language used where the prohibition is given is used by the author of Judges. He's calling out, this person in every way, technically and in spirit, defied the law, broke the law. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing (coughs) made by the hands of a craftsman and set up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Here's the point. Made-up gods are fun and impressive for a season. There's a certain allure to sin. Even when you know something's not real, you kind of go with it because it's new and it feels good in the short term. Even our brains can say, this is going to turn out really, really bad someday. But we keep marching ahead. Made-up gods are fun for a while, but the novelty wears off. Listen to the warning of Jesus in Matthew 23, 25. He says, woe to you, warning, caution, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly (coughs) appear beautiful. But within, they are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Thanks. I got water. Thanks, man. Um, We have a couple of presents up here, and some of you are going to go to a white elephant gift party. This Christmas season. A white elephant gift is not a gift you really want, right? That is something you're going to hang on to for about five seconds, or you're going to try to re-gift it at the next white elephant party that you go to. Any white elephant gift party I've ever hosted, I made a rule after the very first time saying any gift you open has to leave with you. Nothing stays on the premises because I found my garage full of junk. People of Israel went after the big red shiny bow and not after the real gift. They went for, they waited the white elephant gift instead of the real gift. Now here's what's curious about this. You have to take someone's word for that. I'm letting you know that the pink one is the real gift. 
The blue one is the white elephant gift. Externally, do they look the same? Absolutely. Religious ritual can look identical on the exterior, but here's what Israel was doing. They were exchanging relationships, saying, no thank you, give me the ritual. Do you see that? They waited the ritual. They waited the household God, the ephod. They, we want the stuff that looks like we're doing the God life right. They're doing exactly what the scribes and Pharisees, where Jesus gave this harsh warning to. Woe to you. You're so concerned with the ritual, you've given up the relationship. That's what made up gods do. They rip you off. Materialism, individualistic, selfish thinking, scheming and scamming. That's what we've seen so far in two chapters. These are marks of a society with no obeying of God's law, but it gets even worse. Made up rules. <coughs> Excuse me. The event we're about to look at actually provokes a civil war in Israel. It's such a big deal that it starts a war. And the U.S. is a pretty non-blushing, almost impossible to shock nation. And yet as you read this account, it's both shameful and shocking. Here's the common theme that you read when you see this. That God's rules are ignored and people's own rules are set up to be lived by. Literally, they are their own king. If you look at verse or chapter 19, it starts with another Levite completely disregarding his post and God's holy standard of marriage from Genesis 2.24. He has a concubine who is unfaithful to him. And what it opens with is basically two stories of hospitality. One, we see Bethlehem hospitality in verses 1 to 10. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but it basically describes the calloused view toward women that's now prevalent in the land. There was sort of an air of hospitality, which in this culture is a sacred duty. Hospitality totally different than what we think of it. This is something that you do. It was there. There was an air of, of hospitality, but it was, it was perverted. The part I want to focus in is 11 through 28, where Gibeah shows hospitality. It's debased in a different way. There's kind of an ironic twist where the Levite's coming through town. He's traveling. He says... I don't want to stay at one of these non-redeemed covenant people groups. I want to go into a place where there's covenant people. We're going to move on to Gibeah and stay there. <coughs> He's presuming that they're going to be acting better than he is. He's presuming that there's going to be safety and welcome and genuine hospitality there. What happens here on this night would call to mind... Another 19th chapter of a book, it's Genesis 19. It's the story of Sodom. That's what we see going on in this account. Essentially, there's wickedness all around. We see the wicked men of the city. They show up and they come demanding to have sex with the man who was taken in and shown hospitality by this old man in Gibeah. That's wicked. That's at least intent to violate the seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. And for sure, a violation of the tenth command, you shall not cover your neighbors, covet your neighbors anything. They're coveting his house guest. Look at it, verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, 
Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. The wickedness goes on to the host. He has a perverted sense of duty that causes him to ignore truth, ignore standing up to these men, ignore decency. Instead offers to throw two innocent women to the wolves. Verse 23, And the man said, And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. As the story progresses, we now get to the Levite, where surely there should be some shred of decency. The man of God, of the priestly line of the Levites. His response reveals a complete lack of the knowledge of God. Surely it's not that he didn't know it, it's that he suppressed it. As Romans said, his debased mind has suppressed the truth. And in verse 25, it says this, But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out. That man is the Levite. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying on the floor of the house with her hand on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Shocking and grotesque. As I thought on this scene, as I read this scene, as I said, God, what on earth does this have to do with us? Here's what came to my mind, friends. As shocking and grotesque as this is, this is nothing different than it's pouring out of Hollywood. This is nothing different than what we see on the nightly news made-up rules regarding all forms of sexuality being legitimate. We are bombarded by that idea constantly. What I just read in Romans is never heard. Religion as a front for wicked acts and then cover-up and scandal. Constant. Violence and even brutal dismembering of body parts in the name of free choice and in the name of religion. Current. Relevant. Put right in front of us. Debased minds. Made up gods and made up rules. Made up gods and made up rules. It's true of an ancient book of the Bible. It's true of 21st century living. Look at the very last verse of the book of Judges. It ends abruptly and appropriately. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The author is putting this final stamp of, there you go. There's the commentary. There's why this is all going on. 
As we close Judges as a church, here's a question for you. How is it after chapters 1 through 21 of Judges, can you account for the fact that there is still an Israel? How is it that after all that we just read, all the sin cycle, all the junk, and then landing in the sewage pit that we've landed in this morning, how is there still an Israel? I want to read for you from this commentator I mentioned before. He says this, It can only be because Yahweh wished to dwell in the midst of his people in spite of its sin. It can only be because Yahweh wished to dwell in the midst of his people in spite of its sin. It can only be because Yahweh's grace is far more tenacious than his people's depravity and insists on holding them fast even in their sinfulness and their stupidity. What's amazing about the book of Judges is he wasn't even close to being done saving. Listen to the book of Acts. Of this man's offspring, Acts 13.23 says, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. The pointer of every judge in the book of Judges is to the judge. Let me read for you two prophecies regarding Jesus Christ. The first one's already been fulfilled, and we hear it a lot around this time of year, Isaiah 9.6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's already been fulfilled. A son was given, a son was born, The government does rest on the eternal Jesus Christ's shoulders. This next one has yet to happen, and this prophecy came from Jesus' own mouth about himself, Matthew 25. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, listen, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Jesus is the righteous judge. As we end the series that we've called Judge for Yourself, I want to direct your attention back to Romans. We just read a lot of bad news at the end of Romans 1. Romans 2.1 is sobering as well. And I close off our series asking you to, to discover where do you stand. Judge for yourself. Judge for yourself where you stand in light of this. Romans 2.1 Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Pause for a moment. Isn't it easy to distance ourselves? from the wicked, grotesque, butchering acts in a barbaric society that seems different from ours. But haven't we seen, friends, all through the book of Judges, a very relevant current thing, not just to non-church members, non-Christians, but in our own wicked hearts? Lest you think you hold up against the Ten Commandments well, I can assure you, you don't. But go and read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he takes the Ten Commandments 
And he begins to talk about the internal thoughts of men and women. Not just the external actions that are given. You who judge practice the very same things. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We have an Israel still. Why? Because God's kind. He's not kind so that they can go get even more wicked. It's meant to lead us to His grace. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let me pray. After night comes the dawn. After all our hands have wrought, He repairs. He restores. And we will never, ever be the same. God, this morning, we're hit with the sobering reality of deserved death for our sinful ways. And this morning, God, what shines brightly is the new birth. What shines brightly is that the flesh is of no help in spiritual rebirth, of no help in attaining righteousness. It's found only in You. I pray this week, this season of Advent even, would be a celebration of truths that may have grown cold. A sorrow over the stench of sin. A seeking of things beautiful, of true. God, we live in a nation that doesn't even believe in the wrath of God, and we're under the wrath of God. God, help us. Help us.